Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. In this episode, we're celebrating the actual birthday of the Society, founded on the 25th of June 100 years ago, with past president, Nobel laureate and winner of the Genetic Society's first centenary medal, Sir Paul Nurse. The Genetic Society was born on the 25th of June 1919. The brainchild of Edith Rebecca Saunders and William Bateson, the pair convened a meeting at the Linnaean Society, based at Burlington House in London, to propose founding a genetical society. The idea met with broad approval from the assembled leading lights of this fast-growing, newfangled discipline, and the first meeting of the society was held a couple of weeks later in Cambridge. To celebrate this auspicious day, the Genetic Society held a very special birthday party at the John Innes Centre in Norwich, where Bateson was director. First, we were treated to a wonderful exhibition of artefacts from the Society's history, including Bateson's original microscope and some fascinating photos. Then, past president of the Society and Nobel Prize winner Sir Paul Nurse unveiled two blue plaques dedicated to the founders, followed by the first ever Centenary Medal Lecture. We can't bring you the whole of Paul Nurse's brilliant lecture, which covered his life in research and discovery of the key genes that drive cells to divide, but I have picked out a few highlights. Afterwards, we sat down properly to chat about his thoughts on serendipity in science, the craziest experiment he ever did, and his favourite gene, so do stay tuned. Paul started by talking us through his early work carrying out genetic screens in fission yeast in search of genes which, when broken, meant that the cells couldn't divide but just kept on growing, appearing down the microscope as unusually elongated cells. But, as he explained, a chance observation led to the discovery of something new and unexpected, which was quite the opposite. Doing four genetic screens of this sort also have the potential to bring about serendipitous discovery. That is, a discovery of things that you've never thought of before. And such open-ended searches allow what I like to call nature to deliver unexpected mutant phenotypes to the geneticists. In other words, if you keep alert, you can see things that you hadn't imagined that might well be informative. An important uh, <coughs> example of this um, in the fission yeast screens that was near, we were carrying out was the serendipitous finding of a microcolony of small cells during a screen for elongated cell cycle mutants. Seeing such cells led to the realisation that they were advanced into mitosis and cell division and divided before they could grow to the normal size. This was a chance observation. But having seen these mutants, which were called wee mutants, because they were isolated in Scotland, in Edinburgh, and I thought it was funny at the time. <laughs> I no longer think it's funny, because I've been saying this for 45 years. But it did seem funny at the time. So I just want to say, for those of you who like the idea of cute names for genes or proteins, just ask yourself whether it is likely to still be cute and funny 40 to 50 years later. <laughs> Mostly, they are not. Paul found his first wee mutant and then went hunting for more. But that second wee gene proved to be frustratingly elusive. Now, this screen for new wee mutants, I'm getting a bit personal here, was extremely laborious. 
Um, it was a visual screen, and I could only get about one to two mutants every week. I couldn't cope with more than five hours on the microscope. It took a long time. The goal I set myself was to isolate 50 such mutants. This took about a year. The Wee 2 mutant, what eventually turned out to be the Wee 2 mutant isolate, was spotted late on a rainy Friday afternoon in Edinburgh, and it was November, and for those of you who have lived in Edinburgh, you may remember how miserable November is, especially when it's raining. And it was on a plate which was terribly contaminated with a filamentous fungus. And as you also, many of you will know, it's very difficult to to sort them out, because the fungus just grows everywhere. And as it was Friday afternoon, as I was tired, I threw it away in the rubbish bin. I cycled home, I had my tea, and then I felt guilty. <laughs> and I felt more and more guilty as the evening proceeded. And then I cycled back about nine o'clock. And because it was the 1970s, certainly the rubbish bin hadn't been emptied by that time. And it was still in the rubbish bin. I got it out. And it turned out, this was the 47th or 48th mutant, to be the only mutant allele I got, which wasn't D1. Paul and his team went on to investigate the role that all these new genes were playing in cell division, leaving his favourite, CDC2, until last. And it's here that he ran into another frustrating problem. He was carrying out an experiment where he switched mutant yeast to a different temperature to see whether they would create spores or not. This should have been a yes-no answer, so he was baffled when he realised that only 20% of the cells were behaving. Now, the only permissible answers were 0% or 100%. And being a biologist, anything less than 5% could count as 0 as far as I was concerned. Anything over 80% could as 100, but even I had trouble with 20%. So I, of course, did what we would all do. I did it again, and I got 20%. It involved, again, it involved, of course, doing shifts between temperature and you know, water bath, and the accuracy um, mattered. So I bought a bigger thermometer. <laughs> I tested the temperature of the water. I did it again. I got 20%. I then got depressed and put it away in the drawer and left it for a month. Um, Realised I was getting increasingly close to the end of my contract. Got it out again, did the experiment again, and got 20%. Then I had a light light up in my head. What about if 20% was the right answer? (laughs) That has absolutely never occurred to me. I was convinced it was the wrong answer, and I was just looking for the right answer, which was zero or 100%. A valuable lesson in challenging your assumptions and investing in decent lab equipment, something the pool could have done with when he and his team were trying to develop a technique called transformation, something that had never been done before in fission yeast. This involves trying to sneak some DNA into the cells to see whether it contains the gene you're interested in and requires breaking through the thick yeast cell wall. The yeast are not very happy about this situation and they need to be kept in soft nutrient jelly known as agar. And it's here that he encountered a problem. Unfortunately, I used um, a cheap soft agar. I was in the University of Sussex at the time and couldn't afford the more expensive soft data. 
and this led to it solidifying in the tubes before plating. But I'd done all the work up until that point. So what I did was I got the tube and sort of banged it like tomato sauce, you know, trying to get tomato sauce out. And it sort of all came out in a heap on the plate. And then I used the petri dish to squash it all over the plate. Now, of course, any sensible scientist would have thrown it all away. Okay. But I just put it in the incubator just in case something grew up. To my amazement, all these sort of colonies started to appear immensely in all the, the, the goop that was on the plate. And it turned out, in the end, these weren't contaminants, but actually were transformed fission yeast, the first ones that we had ever made. After those early days of transformation came the advent of reliable DNA sequencing, finally allowing scientists to start reading the genetic code of yeast and all its genes. Paul was obviously keen to get the fission yeast genome sequenced, but he had a problem extracting the cash to do it until he came up with an ingenious plan. The problem we had there was, as usual, fission yeast was not on the hot list for genomic sequencing, at least for the genomic sequencing community. And whilst I applied for money to try and get it sequenced, unlike the budding yeast, the worm, the fly, for example, um, let alone humans, I could never get any funding to get the organism sequenced. Then, luckily, I met somebody called Bart Burrell. Some of you may know him, Bart Burrell. Um, worked with Fred Sanger um, and had Bart had applied and got a grant from a funding agency in inverted commas, you'll see why in a moment, to contribute to the sequencing of the budding yeast genome, which is the first eukaryote to be sequenced. But Bart had rather too much money for the budding yeast. So between us, in the pub actually, we cooked up the idea that we could use the excess funding to sequence fission yeast because I suggested that maybe the funding agency wouldn't notice. <laughs> Unfortunately, of course, they, they did notice. Because about half, we did about half the genome sequence in a few months. Um, and then I said, well, we'll go back to the funding agency and they will see they'll have the second eukaryote entirely funded by them if they just give us a bit more money. And they're bound to do it. Well, of course, they weren't amused. I got dressed down and they said they had no intention of providing the extra money, nor would they let me apply for the extra money. So then, Bart and myself had to go to the European Union and we um, produced a cottage industry initiative where we deployed it all out to a dozen labs, some of you may remember this when we had to do this, a dozen labs round Europe to get the damn thing finished. We took another two years um, to get it done, but it still ended up being the fourth eukaryote to be fully sequenced. After a dazzling trip through all his discoveries, Paul ended his lecture with an exhortation to the audience about the power of genetics and his advice for those working in the field. So I've tried to demonstrate how genetics can help understand biological processes and phenomena. Key to this is genetic thinking, powerful classical and molecular genetic methodologies, and this ability to toggle genetics, biochemistry, cell biology, theory, and silico. But for this type of approach to work, it always requires a clear focus on what you're trying to understand, embedded in a good understanding of the physiology of the organism under study. As Barbara McClintock so aptly said, the maze geneticist, the researcher needs to have a true 
feeling for the organism. Geneticists need to engage with the whole organism. Genetics is a wonderful discipline. For me, it's the queen of the biological sciences. Thank you for listening to me, and happy 100-year birthday to the Genetic Society. Thank you. And finally, I just had to include this anecdote that he told at the end of the Q&A session about being a very young scientist meeting Barbara McClintock, the pioneering maize geneticist whose phrase, a feeling for the organism, is such a touchstone for biology. I was at the back of Coldspring Harbour and there was a really terrible talk going on um, at the front. You know, that happens. And I, it was a terrible session. I gradually moved further and further back in the... In, in, in the session while I was at the back row. And then um, I was obviously uh, fidgeting. And then this old lady next to me said, do you think it's terrible too? <laughs> and I said, yes. And she said, would you like to come and have a cup of tea? <laughs> I looked at her, because it's a bit unusual, you know, I normally get old women asking to have tea with me. Or young women, for that matter. <laughs> and um, I went out, and then I realised it was Barbara McIntosh, and she took me back to her maze lab and showed me all of her cobs and gave me tea and biscuits. <laughs> Rather than tea and biscuits, we headed off for a drinks reception, where some of the finest minds in genetics were tasked with making cocktails out of frozen strawberries, pineapple juice, and chilled overproof rum in the hope of extracting some DNA. I dragged Paul away for a slightly rum-fueled discussion about all things genetics, starting with what he saw as the role of serendipity in science. Well, I think serendipity is quite important. I mean, I want to make it clear, not everything is driven by serendipity. It's all just luck. (laughs) So trying to do something sensible, but in an open-ended way that allows you to pick up things that you perhaps couldn't imagine And could geneticists do, or classical geneticists, do so many visual screens, what that means is that you actually see things that you hadn't imagined. So doing a decent screen looking for things you have imagined is the starting point. And then a bonus, the serendipitous bonus, is to see things that you hadn't imagined, and that may take you in completely different directions. The other aspect of serendipity you uh, talked about was meeting people who can stimulate in ways you didn't expect and that certainly um, was the case for me people working in different areas you come across them and you learn from it we're here in Norwich I was a graduate student a biochemistry graduate student and I was only really exposed to genetics by going over to the Jolliniers and talking to people and realizing what it could do and that made me think I ought to do genetics from that point on When I was thinking about what is controlling, for example, the cell cycle, I was hugely influenced by uh, rate-limiting steps in metabolic pathways, which is something that a professor in a completely different department was thinking about in terms of metabolic pathways. So these sorts of things are not exactly chance, because you're actually looking for different things, but they are not things that you've imagined before. And laying yourself open to what nature delivers you actually can lead you in very new and interesting ways. I remember in my very first year at university I was lectured by Ron Lasky and his phrase that always stuck with me was uh, the Pasteur phrase, fortune favours the prepared mind. Yes, well that's a quote I think from Pasteur if I recall Maybe, <laughs> who knows. Um, and uh, Ron, who i known, I first met him in about 1976, 77 
he's a biochemist rather than a geneticist, but he's always been attentive to things that are a little different because he worked with Xenopus and... The uh, weird frogs. The weird frog <laughs> and the extracts there. And it's sort of half biological, half biochemical. So I'm not surprised he said that. And when you look back over your career, are there any particular events, any serendipitous meetings or things that really stand out as a turning point for you? Well, the one that I talked about a little bit today was spotting these mutants that were dividing at a small size that it must be said most people wouldn't have probably taken too much notice of. But because I had noticed in the yeast that I was studying that they always divided at the same size, Somewhere in the back of my head, I was thinking the cells were uh, finishing their cell cycle when they reached a certain size. And therefore, when I suddenly saw cells dividing at a much smaller size, it made me instantly think they must have been advanced into that, into mitosis and cell division, because they hadn't grown to the right size. And that immediately connected to rate-limiting steps and some rate-limiting component somewhere in the cell cycle. And it... It was there in 15 seconds in my head. I then remember trying to explain it to everybody, who, and they weren't really following me. I mean, um, they just thought, oh, these are some contaminant that's coming. But I, I was instantly converted. So that's probably the um, best example. I mean, the other big change, which isn't entirely serendipitous, but in fact, it's not serendipitous, but it was ludicrously bold, was when I wanted to ask whether human cells had the same gene before everything was sequenced, so long before. And the reason why it was bold, and therefore serendipitous to even try it, was because nobody thought for one moment that a complicated process like cell reproduction could be the same in a simple yeast and a human cell. It was thought ludicrous. We are way more sophisticated than yeast, you crazy man. And so it really didn't seem worth doing but I realized that if it worked we were I mean this would be spectacular. Plane tickets to Sweden kind of time. (laughs) Well I'm not sure I thought that exactly but it would be spectacular and we struggled with conventional methods and then the method that we tried that again nobody thought would work would be I got hold of the first human cDNA library only been made a few months before by Paul Berg and Hirota Okiyama who gave it to me just sort of just straight away as soon as they made it very generously and I transformed it um, together um, with Melanie Lee, who was in my lab, postdoc. We transformed it into a mutant of the key gene, CDT2, a temperature-sensitive mutant. Couldn't grow at the high temperature because the cell cycle control was defective. Reasoning that if human cells had a gene with the same control, then we might fish the gene out. That the... it should replace it. And, of course, people thought this was crazy. I mean... Um, I was talking to my friend Peter Goodfellow and I remember in the audience today and I remember him thinking that this was completely barking mad and I had to agree with him, it was pretty barking mad but it actually worked, we got colonies growing up and I can tell you when I saw that I thought my goodness, my goodness serendipitous not quite true but luck, bold and everything else, yes That is one of my favourite ever science experiments to make that leap from so many million years of evolutionary time ago Maybe it will just work. And, you know, we're not talking... Just to emphasise it, it's 1,500 million years, 1.5 billion years divergent. Dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago. I mean, it is deep in the depths of time. I mean, do that same experiment with dinosaur CDC too. Yeah, but it would be less interesting (laughs) than 1.5 billion years. And think about it. There's been... 
3 billion years of divergent evolution, 1.5 plus 1.5, yet it's still conserved to the point where the cells even divide at more or less the same size. It's madness. Mind. It's madness. Evolution is incredible. Biology is incredible. Uh, but we're here to talk about genetics. It's the Genetic Society centenary. And for you, what, what do you feel is the, the purpose, the role of societies like the Genetic Society? It's been going for 100 years. What do you feel it does for the genetics community? You know, first thing I want to just admit, I am so fond of the Genetic Society. I remember when I was a graduate student not even doing genetics, and wanting to learn about it, I'd go along to the meetings. It was so community-based. Good parties? There were, well, there were parties too, <laughs> but I, uh, it's true. But the regular meetings, and you could talk about things, you could meet people who were uh, much more experienced and quicker uh, in thinking about these issues. It was a real education for me. Then when I became president, which I was, uh, I became president about 1990, 1991, so it's a long time ago, over a quarter of a century ago now. Um, it, I remember it was so amateurish. I, we'd have meetings, and I remember making the tea for, you know, the tea break in lots and lots of big kettles just to make tea for the 50 people, 100 people there. It was an utterly community-based society, still is, serves the community, does a fantastic job of it, in my view, very friendly, relies on his income on journals, which, I mean, Plan S is a real danger for it. And the people talking about open source and Plan S have not understood what damage this might do to societies like the Genetic Society. It's a serious, serious problem. It is a wonderful thing. I love it. Now, I'm, I, I do a lot of things now, but it is my intention <laughs> when I have got... I run an institute called the Crick Institute, and when that oh, it's is that place. when it's sort of on firmer ground, I intend to re-engage with the genetic society and do whatever I can to help others in the society too. Come and make a nuisance of yourself. I will come, and I always do make a nuisance of myself. Yeah. And finally, it would be remiss of me if I didn't ask you, past president of the Genetic Society, Nobel Prize winner, do you have a favourite gene? Well, the gene that's made me famous, if I am famous, is this gene called CDC2. It's a protein kinase. It controls all the events of the cell cycle in the fission yeast, and relatives do it in other organisms. has to be my favourite gene. If I didn't work on that, then I think it would be one of the homeotic genes in Drosophila. When the um, homeotic guys and girls, because it was also Yanni Nusslein Volhar, were looking at um, these developmental mutants and looking at mutants that would make an antennae, put a leg on an antennae, I'm not sure that happened, but something like that. Yeah, the legs out the eyes and all those double wings. It's amazing. I love those mutants. Love those mutants. A single gene just rearrange your entire body plan. Biology is amazing. There's no question biology is amazing, which is why we're biologists and genetics is the most amazing part of biology and that's why we're geneticists. Sir Paul Nurse, past president of the Genetic Society, Nobel laureate, and, as it turns out, a fan of fruity cocktails. After that, we all headed off for an excellent dinner, complete with a pea-themed starter, a punnet square of puddings, and cakes bearing a secret birthday message written in the triplet code. And that's not all. It's DNA, DNA, three little letters with a lot to say. Deoxyrab, 
the sound of science troubadour Johnny Berliner, who entertained us all during dinner. But he saved the best till last, with a specially commissioned song about the history of genetics, taking in everything from peas to fruit flies to bacteria, worms, yeast and more. Written with a little help from Alison Woolard, a former PhD student of Paul Nurse, who's now Professor of Biochemistry at Oxford University, as well as her PhD student, Emily Baker. We'll be making a proper recording available in the near future, but for now, here's a little taster. Now flies are fine to study, but their chemistry's complex. So George Beetle and Ed Tatum mutated molds to test, leading to the famous one gene, one enzyme hypothesis, and show genetics and biochemistry of one. It's the greatest thing in Eurospar has ever done. Thanks to all the members of the Society's Centenary Committee for their sterling efforts in creating such a fantastic celebration, and particularly to the Centenary Project Manager, Christina Fonseca, and also to Alison Woolard. That's all for now. Next time we'll be back with more stories from our series Exploring 100 Ideas in Genetics. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip and you can email us podcast at geneticsunzip.com with any questions and feedback. Please, please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and it would be really great if you could rate and review. And more importantly, please spread the word so more people can discover this show. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Katani, and produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. The logo was designed by James Mayle. Transcription is by Viv Andrews and production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.